We've been in a series in the Gospel of John for some time now, and uh, let me back up just a little bit before we get back into the text today. Uh, the Gospel of John is written by a man named John, one of Jesus' apostles, one of his closest followers. Uh, he wrote this account of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, um, and John writes uh, for a very particular reason. In fact, towards the end of his gospel, uh, he says, I have written this so that you might believe in Jesus and find life in his name. So John's very specific about why he's writing. He's writing to invite us on a journey of belief, to believe in who Jesus is. So in the first couple chapters of John, he lays out um, who Jesus is. He claims Jesus to be uh, the agent in creation. He claims Jesus to be God in human flesh, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man here on earth. So he follows up those claims then with seven signs. He points to these seven different things, stories, miracles, things that Jesus did that point us towards who he is. Uh, Just like a signpost on a hiking trail, uh, the destination is not that signpost. That signpost is pointing towards a destination, pointing towards something greater. And so in the same way, John uses these signs to begin to clarify for us who Jesus is, who is this Messiah, and why and how we would come to believe in him. So we've seen two signs so far in our text. Uh, The first uh, was an interesting story at a wedding where Jesus turns water into wine. Uh, The second uh, that we saw recently was Jesus healing an official son. What's interesting about both the first two signs is that they're not these huge miracles that everyone saw and was so amazed by Jesus' power. In fact, in both cases, uh, only a few people knew what happened. At the wedding, only a few knew that Jesus had made this great wine that they enjoyed at the healing of the official son. Um, Jesus sends the man on his way just to trust that this, this, his child would be healed. No one knew the outcome of that story except for those back at this official's house. They're unique stories in, in that they're not huge, but they point towards who Jesus is. Today we engage a text in John chapter 5, and it is a, another miracle, another healing, It's a distinct one, though. Uh, Today, uh, Jesus encounters a man with a disability. And before I get started, I want to couch this conversation a little bit. I think we as a culture um, lack sensitivity and empathy around peoples with disabilities. I think we struggle to engage terribly well here. And it's not new to our culture. I think this is something Israel struggled with as well, and we'll see come out in the text. Now, I have a friend um, who was born with some developmental disabilities, and uh, I came to know him a couple years ago through another church planter friend as he moved from Spokane here to the Tri-Cities. And about a year ago, uh, my good friend, uh, who lives in a group home here in the Tri-Cities, was in some sort of dispute in the home in which he lived. Uh, He was pushed and he pushed back, and though no one was hurt in this uh, little altercation, um, it's the policy and requirement of the home to bring the police in to look into it. And unfortunately, our police force, and as we've learned in the last year, our court systems are not equipped to handle peoples with disabilities well. Uh, what's happened is over the course of the last, uh, last year, and specifically six months, we found it 
absolutely impossible to navigate the system. No progress was being made. Oh, court dates uh, just extended out again and again. Constant threats of being arrested. If he didn't go, for instance, turn in his fingerprints at the jail. And three times we went to the jail. I, I went with my friend to the jail to, to that he could be fingerprinted. And uh, all three times we were turned away because the proper paperwork wasn't in their hands. And yet, the courts are threatening to arrest him next time if it's not done. Finally, on the fourth time, uh, he was able to turn in uh, those fingerprints just this last week. And you can imagine the frustration and the confusion that my friend is experiencing through this entire journey as he's told one thing and then experiences something entirely different. It's a messy and challenging system. Uh, you might remember it was about six months ago that I mentioned this, and we had hired an attorney, a lawyer, to help us through this process. And uh, I think in a week and a half, it'll be resolved. It, it looks very likely that it will be done soon. But it's opened my eyes to some of the incredible challenges that some people face and the ways that both I am unaware of some of the challenges he's facing. I try to walk with him and I try to understand more. Uh, and societally, how challenging it is and how poorly often we deal with these things. So today, we're going to engage a story about a man with a disability. And knowing that we struggle to engage these conversations tactfully and with grace, um, today I'm going to do my best to engage this conversation well, but I just want you to know I'm open to input as to how I can better navigate these conversations in the future. You'll notice today as I read the text, uh, I'll be reading out of the NIV, the New International Version, and uh, I'm going to modify the language just slightly in a couple places because I want to be sure that as we read this story today, we read the story of a person. The story of a person that Jesus interacts with, not the story of a disability that Jesus encounters, but instead a person. So let me read from uh, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. And, and which is surrounded by five cover, covered colonnades. Here a number of people with disabilities used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who, uh, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the man replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. In this text today, we find Jesus entering Jerusalem again. Jerusalem is the hub of uh, Israelite faith. It's the capital of their nation, and it is uh, the place in which uh, the temple exists. So it's the place you come for religious festivals. Understand that in the, the term festival would ring a little bit different in our ears than the Israelites would understand it. You see, built into Israelite culture were these rhythms, Throughout the year, there was all of these different festivals and feasts and events, and each of them marked a significant uh, period in Israel's history in which God intervened. 
And Israel had these rhythms of reliving their experiences with God. So, for instance, at Passover, uh, when the Israelites would remember God leading them out of Egypt, they would eat unleavened bread and remember the bread that didn't even have time to rise as our, as our people rushed out of Egypt. And so they built into their year uh, these times of coming back together and remembering and even reliving the things that God had done for their people. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem for one of those festivals. The text doesn't specify which one, and so we need not speculate on that today. And apparently Jesus is wandering off the beaten path because Jesus finds himself at a remote gate meant for animals uh, and near it a pool with some sort of cover, some sort of shade, where apparently all the refuse of Israelite society gathered. Laying on their mats, it was likely a place of filth and a place certainly no one coming to a festival wanted to go to because, after all, if they interacted in the wrong way or touched a person there, they might be ceremonially unclean and unable to go then into the temple and worship and do the things that this festival was all about. Be assured, this was not a place that many people would go. And yet, we find Jesus in our text today walking around that place. The response of Israel was probably a lot like our response societally to some of these sorts of things. Um, every year we spend a, a couple weeks uh, uh, split up through the year in, in Seattle. And uh, just imagine with me as we walk the streets of Seattle. Typically, we park our car, and we love the opportunity just to be to, able to walk to the restaurants and the things that we'll do while we're there. And as we walk down a street that we've walked a hundred times and turn down a new road that we've turned down a hundred times, every once in a while, you'll turn a road, and you'll find a sidewalk entirely blocked by tents and by filth, and sometimes there's someone yelling profanities and things like that. What do you experience in that moment as you, as you turn the corner and you see these things? Let's be honest, as a, as a society, we look down upon this. We think immediately incredibly negative things about the people and the situations there. Israel had a, a, same, a similar aversion, a similar frustration. Notice there's this place out by the, the, the gates where those people would gather and the rest would avoid. I love the character of Jesus as he engages. As Jesus walks through this place that society had cast out to the side, he comes across a man who for 38 years had been unable to walk. And the man is laying at this place called Bethesda, which literally translated means house of mercy or house of grace. What an ironic title for this place, because there was little mercy or grace or hope in this place. If anything, the name implies a cry for mercy or grace. This is the house of mercy or grace. Please bring mercy or grace for these people. It seems a place with very little of either. You'll notice if you're looking in your, in your Bibles, and there's some under the, the seat in front of you if you want to look at it, um, there's no verse 4 in this text. And verse 4 uh, gives a little bit of clarification, but it's interesting. You see, the text that we read, this Gospel of John that we read, is compiled from thousands of uh, documents, papyrus, manuscripts, that have been recovered, um, and then combined 
to get this cohesive story and text. So some of them quite lengthy and containing a lot of a book or a New Testament document. Some of them just pieces. And what's interesting is scholars have found that in this Gospel of John, the earliest manuscripts that we have, the ones that we know to be the closest to the origin of the time that John wrote it, um, didn't include verse 4. Uh, it's likely that just later on, a number of years later, someone trying to explain what's happening in this text added a little description of why this water was significant. Verse 4 reads, if it's in your Bible, uh, from time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Okay, so kind of interesting. Someone came back in and and and, uh, and and added this description. The reason they lay by this pool was that their only hope was to be the first in the water when it happens to stir. Now I don't know entirely what to do with this verse um, today. I think the way I'm going to handle it is kind of as just a superstition, a hope amongst people that had no hope. Now, if truly what, there was an angel stirring and healing people, that's a beautiful thing as well. But the way I'll handle the verse in the text today uh, is, is that this was just kind of a belief that it had been, that had come into existence from a people that just had no other hope. But they had to pin hope on something, right? How do you keep going without any hope in that moment? And so, uh, Jesus encounters this man laying by a pool. I can only imagine what this man dreamed of. Can you imagine a man who doesn't have use of his legs, potentially none of his upper body as well, wanting to get into a pool? Is there a more dangerous place for him? What did he imagine? What did he hope for? Having laid there for decades, who knows how long, as he lay there and looked at these waters, what did he dream of? Someone moving him into the water instead of getting in themselves? Maybe his legs are instantly healed and he's strong again and he's labeled to leap out of a pool. He imagines who knows what. But all the hope he had left in the world was that someone would put him in that pool when the water stirred. And Jesus asks the man a question. He looks him in the eyes and he says, do you want to get well? Now the answer seems obvious. The question seems strange to me. Who would say no in that moment? It's interesting as the man doesn't answer the question. Instead, he begins to indicate the obstacles and the problems that prevent him from getting well and getting into this pool. Picture this moment as Jesus locks eyes with a man that most of society would never see because they would never approach the place. And Jesus locks eyes with this man who for 38 years can't stand, and he says, do you want to get well? And the man initially looks up, surprised. Uh, someone's speaking to me. And then imagine as his eyes divert from Jesus and down to the water as he says, I can't get in the water. And his eyes move over to the hurting people around him, and he says, and they won't help me. They just get in before me. Somehow I'm fascinated in the text this week as I, as I think through it, as I imagine, as I kind of relive it in my mind. A man looking at Jesus, the creator, the healer. John's described Jesus as living water available to humanity. And the man averts his eyes from Jesus 
and down to water. Maybe there's hope there. These people, they're the problem. His eyes away from the one who can bring healing in this moment. Do you want to get well? Still, it seems a strange question. Um, Got a couple ideas and theories as to what might be happening here. Jesus might be asking a deeper question than just a question of physical healing. Do you want to get well? Do you want new life? Maybe there's spiritual significance in Jesus' question. Are you ready to walk and live in a new way, an invitation to my kingdom? Do you want to get well, put behind you the ailments of this world, not just physical, but emotional and spiritual? Do you want to be fully well? And also, uh, certainly one of the reasons Jesus addresses him and asks a question is that Jesus is giving voice and choice to a man that had neither. Jesus asks him a question, do you want to get well? This man now has some choice, some say in what will happen in his life. And imagine a man that couldn't walk and couldn't leave this pool, no choice, no freedom to move and to go about and to do things, but Jesus gives him choice. And he gives him voice, he invites him, speak what you would like to speak, interact with another human. Jesus certainly sees this man and invites him to more. And so Jesus says, get up and walk. And the man does. And Jesus says, now pick up your mat and take it with you as you go, because this is not your place any longer. This house of healing, this house of mercy and grace. No, there's new mercy and grace in this man's life. He's experienced it in Jesus' words, in Jesus' healing. So take your mat and walk away. And the story continues. We're in the middle of verse 9. And, uh, and Jesus, uh, we, we find out, is uh, operating in some sketchy ways. It'll, the text will explain. The day on which this took place was Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. He replied, "Uh, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and to walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath is a practice amongst the Israelite people instituted by God for his people. I'm not going to be able to go into a ton of detail on Sabbath, but if you'd like to know more about it, it's a beautiful and incredibly important topic. And uh, you could get onto our YouTube channel or our our, um, uh, podcast feed and search the word Sabbath, and you'll find a number of messages specifically about it and and get some more information on it. Um, But Sabbath was God's intervention. God's saying to his people, I don't want you to overwork I want you to take time to rest with me. So six days work, and on the seventh day, God says, I want you just to rest in my presence. No more work. I want you to learn to rest with me. Now, in the Old Testament, we see some detail. Uh, Reading in the Old Testament of our Bible, we can read some detail on Sabbath law. However, what happened over the centuries is the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, created uh, some 1,500 laws around the laws that existed on Sabbath in, in their Torah, in their scripture. Some 1,500 laws to act as a buffer to ensure no one ever got close enough to a law that they would inadvertently sin. 
You get it? It's like this buffer they've created just to ensure no one did anything wrong on Sabbath. And it was an incredible weight upon the Israelite people. You see, God's invitation was to rest, to rest in God, and yet all these laws had actually become a burden, not a place of rest in people's life. And in this moment, on a Sabbath day, Jesus encounters a man that for 38 years has not stood and walked. Explore with me, what does Sabbath look like for this man in this moment? Is it to lay back down? Of course not. What's the most restful and joyous and near-to-God thing he could be doing? It would be standing in Jesus' presence. And so Jesus says, get up and walk. And this man experiences freedom like he never has in the very presence of God. Talk about rest in God. Jesus right in front of him. And here's the irony. Well, there's a couple ironies here. First of all, Jesus is in conflict now with a religion that has lost sight of its purpose in this world and the God that had initiated it, right? The second irony uh, is that uh, in this moment, the man doesn't know who he's talking to. He's standing in Jesus' presence, and he has no clue who is right there in front of him. It hadn't played out the way he expected. His clothes are not soaking wet, right? Uh, Instead, he's standing there looking around in a crowd, for a man who's no longer there. What's fascinating is, is the text tells us in 14 and 15, he makes his way to the temple. Later, Jesus found this man at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. All right, first couple things to deal with in there, to, to, to look at together. Uh, first of all, he's at the temple, a place that both physically he couldn't get to previously, and secondly, a place that he wouldn't be invited into the inner courts because of his disabilities. But now the man is at the temple. Talk about Sabbath. Here he is in God's house, which likely for 38 years he has not been at. Secondly, we have Jesus' statement, which is a fascinating one. Uh, See, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So here's my question. Is Jesus proposing that suffering and sickness is a result of sin? Is Jesus proposing that this man is sick because he had sinned? uh, Or is Jesus proposing that if he sins in the future, then something worse than paralysis will happen to this man? All right. This is a this is a beautiful, profound Christian question, and we could spend a lot of time in discussion on it. Uh, but I'll need to be a little bit brief today. Um, in a broad sense, you could make that argument. In that, if we were still in the Garden of Eden, there would be no sickness and hurt and pain and suffering. Right. So you could make an argument that yes, the fallenness of humanity and sin entering this world is resulting in pain and suffering. However, on a case-to-case basis, on very particular cases, I would be pretty hesitant uh, to make a one-to-one correlation that sin uh, results in some sort of suffering in life. In most cases, I would not seek to understand uh, why am I feeling this pain? Why do I have this sickness? What sin did I commit to accomplish it? In fact, a few chapters later in Luke, in John chapter 9, uh, Jesus is going to be asked this exact question that we're asking right now of Jesus' statement to this man. 
Uh, he's he's going to be asked, this blind man, is he blind because of his sin or his parents? You see, Israel did understand a pretty one-to-one correlation on sin and suffering. And Jesus' response, we'll go into more detail in the future, he says neither. It's not his sin or his parents' sin. So if Jesus isn't necessarily warning this man of a one-to-one correlation, if you sin, you'll get a worse illness, then what might Jesus be saying in this text? I want to notice two contrasts here in the text. Uh, First, the contrast between the grace Jesus shows and the man's superstition. And secondly, um, the Pharisees' pursuit of Sabbath versus Jesus' understanding in this moment. First of all, superstition. Jesus says, go and sin no more or something worse might happen to you. Uh, the, The word sin literally translated means to miss the mark as an archery. The same word would be used of an archer missing the mark as they shot an arrow. So if Jesus is saying here to this man, in contrast to his superstition, don't miss the mark any longer uh, or something worse might happen. I hear in his words this idea of uh, you have all the freedom in the world right now at this point. You're going to go from this place, experience, and do all sorts of new things. And if you look for your next pool to put your hope in, that you avert your eyes to, that you place your hope in and lean upon as this will bring me healing or salvation or hope, just understand bad things will happen. Jesus is contrasting the idea of missing the mark. What will I put my hope in? Will it be the eyes of Jesus who offers to heal me, or will, will it be the superstition or other things? And I think many of us can resonate with this. Where does my hope truly lie? Does it lie in my job security or my bank account or things in this world? Or have I found a way in this life to fix my eyes on Jesus? Understand, if we miss the mark on this, when we start putting our hope in other things, things do not go well, so we fix our eyes on Jesus. Secondly, Jesus says, go and sin no more. Don't miss the mark or something else, something worse could happen to you. Um, Jesus is contrasting the Pharisees and their understanding of Sabbath with the mercy and the hope that he is bringing into this world. You see, the Pharisees have worked incredibly hard to create 1,500 laws and complicate Sabbath, right? They have worked incredibly hard. And in this moment, they're working incredibly hard to point out the problem in this man. Instead of seeing the man for who he is and rejoicing and healing, they're working really hard to point out the faults in others and to criticize Jesus in this moment. I mean, who's at work in this moment? A man walking away with his mat because he's healed or the Pharisees pointing out the, uh, uh, the sin of other people? Jesus could be saying in this moment, don't miss the mark. Uh, don't be drawn into religion that causes you to fail to see people or walk in the freedom and the hope that I have given you, or much worse things will happen in your life. At any rate, Jesus says to the man, don't miss the mark. Jesus has invited this man to new life, and so he invites him to live in it. So we zoom out as we conclude today. What's happening in this text, and what do we take from it? Like, how, How does this shape our lives and who we are as a people? Well, first, we see a man lacking hope, uh, putting his hope in some sort of superstition, but in a hopeless situation in general. And we see Jesus engaging him. 
stepping in and locking eyes and inviting him to know a new way of life. We see the Pharisees and uh, seeing violations rather than seeing a healing and hopeful man for the first time in his life. And finally, and most importantly, we see the character of Jesus. God's intent for our walk in this world is seen in the way Jesus walks in this world and engages. We see Jesus who sees people and gets in the middle of the mess and brings healing and hope. And we consider today, what does it look like to walk in the way of Jesus? Well, it starts with seeing people, right? It starts with locking eyes with even the messy things around us, knowing that God intends hope and healing. And quite often, knowing that we are his hands and feet invited to engage in that place, in that situation. As Jesus sees and engages the hurt and the world around him, we, his church, are invited to do the same. Let's pray about that. God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for an opportunity uh, to dig into your word. A complex and a beautiful story. And God, if, if nothing else out of all that we've explored and the depth and, and the way we've looked back into first century Israel and the culture, God, if nothing else, may we just see the beautiful story of Jesus who stopped and who cared and who healed. And God, will you uh, shape us to be people uh, who see and who heal, who reach out with the loving hands that you are extending in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.